0: Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law in the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. The Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. Given the recent development of countries turning increasingly nationalistic and the rise in global tensions, we thought it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about the importance of international law, why we have it, and why we should implement it. So every week we're going to take a look at the latest news and break down the legality of what happened using the framework of international law. Last week, the Trump administration expanded the global gag rule to impact all global health assistance, some $8.8 billion in U.S. foreign aid. This week, we'll be looking at the abortion restrictions that the U.S. has been applying to its foreign aid for decades. We'll discuss the impact that these restrictions have on women around the world and what is being done to challenge them.
1: I think it makes the most sense to start with Helms and go from there. So in 1973, Roe v. Wade is decided. What happens next?
2: So after Roe v. Wade was decided, there was a concerted effort from the right to start restricting access to abortion, because if you couldn't get rid of the right, then what you want to do is start restricting access. And One of the first measures that was taken was to restrict public funding for abortion services. So Jesse Helms in 1973 introduced the Helms Amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act. And back then what it did was it said that U.S. money that was provided for development assistance, and at that time it was still limited to development assistance, could not be used to support or promote abortion as a method of family planning. That same type of language and that same type of limitation was put in place in 1974 through the Hyde Amendment on domestic funding.
3: So basically after Roe v. Wade, you have the passage of Helms as a matter of law in Congress, and that applied to U.S. money going overseas. And then a year later, you have Hyde Amendment passed, which applied to U.S. money domestically. And both of those are pieces of legislation. And GAG is something different, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit.
2: And since the Helms one was passed in 1973, over the years, it has expanded. So as I mentioned, when Helms first began, it started as a restriction on part one of the Foreign Assistance Act, which is an area that covered Development aid. But over the years, starting in the 80s and in the 90s, Congress started to also include the language of Helms, Directly within annual appropriations bills, which is how the foreign assistance money or any money is approved. And so over the years, it has grown to encompass all appropriations. So that's bilateral aid, humanitarian aid, basically any money that's given out through foreign assistance is now covered. In addition, over the years, a few other restrictions have been put in place in addition to Helms. So Helms was focused on specifically abortion-related speech and abortion services themselves. Then we've had the Biden Amendment, the DeConsigny Amendment, the Leahy Amendment, the Sillinger Amendment, the kemp Katzen Amendment. These are all other vehicles that place limitations on issues related to abortion, involuntary sterilizations, biomedical testing. For the purposes of this conversation, The other amendment that I think is most relevant is the Sillinger Amendment. When it was first put in place, it prevented lobbying for abortion, which meant that you couldn't use U.S. funds to lobby to change laws in favor of liberalizing them. Over time, that amendment has become, quote unquote, neutral, and it is now a restriction that prevents you from using U.S. money to lobby for or against abortion.
3: And as a point of clarification, when Akilah is mentioning the Helms Amendment or the Cylinder Amendment, those are amendments, again, to the appropriations bill. So as the U.S. donates money every year, as the U.S. allocates money every year to go overseas and fund aid programs, these amendments change how those appropriations are permitted to be made. So it could be the case that the U.S. gives $100 million willy-nilly, use it freely, that's Appropriations Bill says. But then amendments to that bill happens and it says, U.S., you can use this $100 million, but you can't use it in X, Y, Z ways. And that's what these amendments are restricting abortion access overseas.
1: Okay. So we've discussed Helms. What happened after in 1984? You mentioned
2: GAG. Can you talk a little bit more about that? In 1984, Reagan decided that it wasn't enough to solely restrict how U.S. AID or State Department grantees were using U.S. funds, but it was important to them what the entire organization did as a whole with anyone's money, what the gag rule did was it said that if you are a foreign NGO receiving U.S. family planning assistance, that in addition to HELMS, in addition to all the other restrictions that are on you on what you can do with U.S. money, you would now have to certify that you would not perform or actively promote abortion as a method of family planning with any funds that you receive from any donor. So as an organization, you would have to stop all abortion services that are as a method of family planning, which allows for limited exceptions in cases of rape, life and incest. Or speak about abortion, provide referrals for abortion.
3: So one critical element going on in the relationship between Helms and GAG is that Congress passes legislation and then the executive is charged with executing those laws. And this is much broader than just humanitarian assistance. It extends to environmental laws. I mean, any law that needs to be executed, it's going to be the executive that puts the rubber to the road, if you will. But that legislation never goes anywhere unless it's repealed by Congress. That is different in the case of executive action. So when Akilah mentions that Reagan put in the gag rule, it's still the case that Helms applies. There has been, and there is today, a tremendous amount of confusion over who is governed by gag, who is governed by Helms, where the overlap is. And that confusion, the difference between who's covered by the legislation and who's covered by the executive action, has an enormous chilling effect, what we call a chilling effect, where no one wants to do any abortion-related activity because they don't know where they fit into this very confusing array of laws and regulations.
2: One thing that we should probably note, you'll notice that I said that the gag rule applies to foreign NGOs. It actually doesn't apply to a broad range of actors that also get helms on them. So helms applies to... NGOs that are U.S.-based. It applies to multilateral institutions. It can apply to public international organizations, which are quasi-state-based organizations like the United Nations. In the context of gag, it only applies to foreign NGOs. And the reason it doesn't apply to U.S. NGOs is because it violates free speech guarantees within the United States for U.S. citizens. So Reagan put it in place. It remained in place through Bush Sr. When Clinton came into office, he issued an executive order to revoke the gag. Girl. When George W. Bush came back, he put it back in place. He essentially put the Reagan order back in place. And then when Obama came into office within days, he revoked it. It's political football. It's a partisan policy that presidents now use pretty routinely in order to affect ideological concerns.
3: This political football, as it goes back and forth, there's nothing that presidents can do about the imposition of the Helms Amendment. Helms is always going to be there. And so- Well,
2: hopefully not.
3: Exactly. Yeah, right. Helms has always been there in the past, I should say. And just to explain explicitly articulate what GAG is because we work so closely with it and we use it so much that I think we can skim over precisely what it does. I'll use an example. So let's say that I grant am a NGO organized under the laws of Sierra Leone. As an NGO, I need donor money. So I get money from the United States. I get money from the European Union. I get money from the UK. If GAG is not in place what I am permitted to do is get money from the US, get money from the EU, get money from the UK, keep all that money separate and As long as I'm not providing abortion services or doing any of the things prohibited by Helms with U.S. money, I am allowed to conduct those services with other donors' money, with UK and EU money. I can still run these operations. Under GAG, what GAG does, why we call it a GAG, is because it would fully prohibit me, it would fully gag me as a foreign NGO to use anybody's money. So what the policy in effect does is it says, okay, foreign NGO, okay, Grant, we're going to give you U.S. money, but this is going... To be a sensor on what you can do with anybody's money, not just U.S. money, and in that way, it is a comprehensive, overarching, massive blanket of what foreign NGOs are able to provide people in need.
2: Well, you actually have to certify. You actually have to right. do a certification that says that you will not engage in these prohibited activities in order to remain eligible for USA. So, if you are a U.S. NGO, you do have to pass the restriction through, so it doesn't apply directly to you, but you actually have to obtain a certification from any of your foreign NGOs that says that they won't do that work.
1: Okay, so fast forward to January 2017 and the new Trump administration. What did he do differently from previous presidents before him? So many things.
2: (laughs) I don't think we have time to get into all those things today. But in terms of the gag rule, Trump decided that his gag rule was going to be bigger. It's something that he seems to enjoy. And so in addition to reinstating the usual limitation on foreign NGOs who receive U.S. family planning assistance, he also instructed the Secretary of State to find a way to expand the requirements of gag to all global health assistance from all departments and agencies. And so that's where we're at. The State Department after 4 months finally announced the parameters of what that expansion will look like. And so it's now going to apply to about 8.8 billion dollars in US global health assistance coming not only out of USAID in the State Department but also to pockets of funding that comes out of HHS, which is Health and Human Services, the CDC, and and the Department of Defense.
3: And where that's different from previous iterations is GAG in its former applications before Trump only applied to US family planning funding, which was around $600 million. Trump expanded that to global health. And like Akilah mentioned, it's $8.8 billion.
2: And the majority of that funding, about $6 billion of it, is actually money that's allocated to PEPFAR, which is programming that deals specifically with HIV and AIDS. President Bush, in a 2003 memorandum after PEPFAR was created, actually specifically exempted PEPFAR from the gag rule and said that even the family planning assistance, if the money came out of the PEPFAR pocket, that it would not be impacted by the gag. And so now we have a massive expansion and we also have a massive expansion into an area where a lot of the programming is interestingly tied with issues of family planning and sexual and reproductive health.
3: And speaking for myself, and I'm not sure if you would agree, Akila, but I'm disheartened, but I'm not entirely surprised that this expansion has taken place. And like you mentioned before, Or with Roe v. Wade being in effect or being the law of the land, you started to have a strategy to restrict access. And the expansion of GAG is fully in line with that strategy. And it's horrible, but it is no different than the types of things we've seen anti-choice advocates and zealots doing in the past.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that with, hence, in the White House, with the Republicans having unfettered power currently within Congress, this is not that surprising. A few years ago, we saw the bill that was called the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act that was introduced, where they even tried to get rid of the rape exceptions. Grant, I think you're exactly right. I think that the anti-choice movement has become more and more emboldened. Um, And I think that they've also decided that facts, figures, evidence, has nothing to do with the policies that we create. We have now 30 years of experience in times when Helms and the gag rule have both been in place. And we know what the impact is. And we know that it is far more harmful to women to have these restrictions in place. You know, it specifically endangers women's health. There was a study that shows that it does the one thing that anti-choice politicians are looking to do, which is it actually increases rates of abortion and not decreases them. Now it increases rates of unsafe abortion, which means that women are taking more chances with their health. But when you cut off access to family planning, to contraception, to condoms, of course you're going to have a rise in unintended pregnancy and of course you're going to have a rise in unsafe abortions. But clearly there is a complete disconnect today between the policies that our politicians are choosing to put in place and any sort of evidence that's related to what's actually beneficial to women's health.
1: So what are the kinds of organizations that will be impacted
2: by this new policy? So in the past, when it was limited to family planning assistance, it was International Planned Parenthood, Maurice and International, the organizations that you think of who provide family planning, some of those organizations know that abortion is important enough to the work that they do that they say, no, we will not sign these restrictions, even though they know that it's going to severely hamper their ability to do their work. And they know that they're going to have to cut down on what they do. But there's a lot of other organizations who don't have the luxury of saying no to U.S. funding. This expansion covers pockets of funding that go towards child and maternal health tuberculosis, malaria, Zika. So you're going to see a much larger range of health-based organizations that are now going to have to certify that in nowhere, no way do they provide abortion services or talk about abortion.
3: And a point that you had made recently, Akilah, that I think is a really sharp one is that this expansion into the way GAG exists now under Trump, the expansion from family planning to global health, the expansion from 600 million to 8.8 billion is going to to include in it a huge swath of organizations that don't have any experience doing this before. And where in the past you have Planned Parenthood and Marie Stopes, they've been through GAG before. They have hopefully some institutional memory on how most efficiently to implement it. There's going to be, who knows, an innumerable amount of organizations now that have no idea what to do. That's a huge, huge problem because one of the most sinister elements of GAG is the fear that it creates. And a lot of these organizations are going to shut down a lot of programming. They don't necessarily need to because they're so afraid of losing their U.S. funding.
2: And I think it's something that we've seen. We know that from the studies that have been done in the past, there is widespread confusion. Because let's be honest, these regulations are really, really confusing. So on the one hand, you have a set of restrictions that say what you can and can't do with U.S. funds. And right now, what you can and can't do with U.S. funds doesn't even include exceptions for rake life or incest. So if you're an organization and you receive U.S. money, for one, you cannot provide or talk at all about abortion in any circumstance. There's no exceptions to it. You cannot buy abortion-related equipment. You cannot lobby for or against abortion. And that can include participating in public conversations in your own country. It can include doing research and studies on the impact of unsafe abortion in your country, especially if that's contemplated towards any sort of legislative reform. So what you can do with the U.S. money is already there. Now on top of it, you get told, and with other people's money, if you've at all figured out how to do any of those things by separating your U.S. funding out, now you have these new restrictions come into place. And now they say with anyone's funding, you can't talk about abortion, you can't provide abortion services, but you can in the context of rape, life and incest, and you can provide these passive referrals, but it's too Confusing. It's too confusing for us as lawyers sometimes to read these regulations and understand what you can and can't do. And so what we know from history is that organizations tend to really restrictively interpret what they're supposed to and what they can and can't do. Then they shut down a whole range of things they can do. You can provide referrals for abortion services in case of rape, life, and incest. You can even provide referrals in a very, very specified set of circumstances that the U.S. government calls passive referrals, where a woman comes in and is already pregnant, is determined to have an abortion, asks you where she can get said services. There's a very specific set of conditions that need to be met, but you can do that. But we know that what most organizations do is they just stop doing anything related to abortion whatsoever. The other impact is because of the way that this does shut down partnerships, and organization who won't sign the gag those organizations lose large areas of money even if they were never getting U.S. money for abortion services but they may lose the funding that they were receiving for say condom deliveries or for providing other sorts of vital sexual and reproductive health care so it also bleeds into a vicious cycle of making all kinds of family planning and sexual and reproductive health care unavailable as well as specifically stigmatizing and shutting down abortion services which we know only leads to women seeking out unsafe abortions.
3: And a point I want to make here is the global gag rule is deadly. It's awful. But neither should we lose sight of how bad Helms is, too. I mean, whether or not gag is in place is material for thousands and thousands of women around the world. But it doesn't change the fact that Helms still exists. And with U.S. money, you still cannot provide these services, even in cases of rape, life and incest. And the U.S. is the largest bilateral donor in the world. So it's going from a horrible, awful situation where the largest bilateral donor in the world doesn't permit you to provide abortion services to a exponentially worse situation where the largest bilateral donor in the world says you can't do it with our money or anyone else's money. I mean, it's it occupies the field almost. And because gag is so odious or because it's so offensive. It's getting a lot of press right now, but I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of how bad Helms is as well. And Helms has been something we've been living with since the 70s.
2: And we will continue to live with until we get congressional commitment to actually overturn Helms. This past Democratic platform, the 2016 platform, was the first time that the Democratic Party had actually put in place a commitment to overturn Helms. We need to continue to push for these types of commitments because the evidence shows over and over again. that. But the only result of this is further harms to women's life. So
1: with Helms in place and this new expansion of GAG, who can perform abortions?
2: A very small subset of organizations that don't get U.S. funding. That's going to be your major organizations. IPPF and Marie Stopes have both said back in January, that they will not be signing the GAT goal. So they will be able to continue to do their programming, albeit likely on a smaller scale around the world. But, you know, there's not really a lot of organizations... That are like that. U.S. based NGOs that are able to set up clinics and provide services without partnering with local organizations. One thing that's very important this time around is there has to be much more clarity when people talk about what can and can't be done, because it's incredibly, incredibly important that we do all that we can to make sure that the chilling effect of gag is minimized, so that people don't just shut down and do the things that they're allowed to do. You absolutely can speak about abortion the gag, I perform abortion services, when it comes to using money from other donors in cases of rape life and incest. Is that what we want? Absolutely not. But is that something that should continue to be provided? Yes. That's where advocates like us, there's a lot of advocates working around these issues to help ensure that the organizations on the ground have the clarity that they need to continue to do what they can. Because we know what a difficult situation this puts the organizations that receive U.S. aid in.
3: And part of the reason why it's such a small subset of organizations is because it's a matter of survivability. Again, the point I was making earlier, The U.S. is the largest bilateral donor in the world, and organizations rely on U.S. money to continue to survive. And so if you forego your U.S. funding in a lot of circumstances, that means you can't exist.
2: And to be fair, there's not a lot of organizations that hold abortion as fundamental to the work that they do. There are some, and they are fantastic. But if you're an organization, you're doing massive work around Zika prevention or malaria transmission, and you get large grants from the U.S. government for that work. You may have a pocket where you have family planning services, where you might refer someone for abortion services, or you might partner with a clinic that performs abortion services. Now, are you really going to risk losing all of your money for that important malaria work that you're doing just so you can continue to do the abortion work? Probably not. And that's not to say anything about the organizations, but it is a reality. Abortion is complicated and hard enough to obtain, whether it's in the United States. There's not that many clinics that do it. There's not that many doctors who are willing to put themselves through the difficulties associated with providing abortion services. That's the same situation around the world. And so what we're doing is we're taking a service that's already difficult to obtain and provide and making it that much more difficult to access. And
1: we've talked about the expansion from family planning to global health assistance and the potential impact from $600 million to now $8 billion. What is being done, if anything, to combat this loss of funding?
3: Encouragingly. A lot of European donors have promised or have tried to fill the gap. And the most immediate of these efforts is called She Decides, which is a a joint initiative by the government of Finland, the Netherlands, Belgium, Sweden and Denmark. And they have allocated this pot of money to try to fill the gap that will be lost for organizations that don't want to Sign the gag
2: and and it, and it's done good work, right? So it was announced by the Dutch government two days after Trump reinstated the gag rule, and there was a conference in March, which was the initial kickoff point, where they were able to secure about 180 million dollars in commitments. That's no small sum of money, but that's also nowhere near the funding gap that could be created if a large set of organizations say no, we are not going to sign the gag order, and a part of that is, of course, going to be contingent on the funding gap. It's going to be contingent on how many organizations end up choosing to comply with the gag and how many choose not to. And so we don't know yet exactly what the volume of it will be, but. We do know that what we can do is guess from past experience that we've seen just how devastating the impact can be when it's just applied to family planning assistance, which was that 600 million figure. And now that we are expanding it far outside, we can only guess that the scale is going to be much, much larger. And it's also, I think for some people, it's going to say, well, it doesn't really matter because they're doing malaria, they're doing Zika, they're doing Ebola. So what does it have to do with abortion? Why would it even matter? Why would it even impact their work? Well, it absolutely would. So when you look at Zika, for example, Zika is intrinsically tied with the dangers of carrying a pregnancy forward. And so if you're restricting Zika programming, you're absolutely restricting the response that can be provided to Zika. And that's the same thing with risk of Ebola are increased for women who are pregnant. Same with HIV and AIDS programming. There's an interconnectedness that people are able to compartmentalize abortion and say, it's just this one service. It doesn't really matter because what's important is all the other stuff. But oftentimes when it comes to women's health, the consequences of these other communicable diseases or these other impacts are exacerbated when it comes to abortion. They cause increased risk to women's life and they also cause increased risk to infant lives. And so abortion is a necessary medical service in all of these contexts. Is there anything new about the response this
1: time around with Trump that's different from before?
3: So as far as I know, the She Decides movement is novel. It is not something that had happened in the past. And one, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but one of the benefits of having Trump as president is that he is a agitator of both things, obviously, that he wants, but also things he doesn't want. And he is a person who motivates a lot of action against him because so many people don't agree with where he's taking the country or the world. And so I think she decides is a good example of it being a response to him and the type of global order he's trying to institute.
2: I also think that one thing that's very important is in the last eight years during the Obama administration, advocates both in the U.S. and around the world did a lot of work to raise the awareness of the harms of the ongoing implementation of the Helms Amendment without exceptions and the residual impacts of the gag rule. And so in the last eight years, there's also been a strong base of global condemnation built really for the first time around the harms of the Helms Amendment, the censorship that it it causes and what governments should be doing to more explicitly commit to funding abortion, more explicitly take actions to counter the Helms Amendment by segregating US funds from their money. The response to the gag now builds upon the eight years of advocacy that have really happened by a large group of actors. And I think that's really important because we don't wanna lose on what we've already gained, which is not only about the gag rule, but also about the fundamental concerns of Helms. And also in trying to bring forth positive models. So there's been a lot of work, not only in trying to get Helms condemned, because that's only one part, but it's also for those governments who are progressive, who are committed to these issues, to understand that when it comes to abortions, it's really important to be explicit and be vocal. So a lot of governments have taken a stance of, well, everyone knows we're okay with funding abortion. Of course, you can use our money to do it. That's true. But at the same time, considering how stigmatized abortion is, is it's actually helpful for grantees to know not only is it okay, but for them to explicitly say, please do use our funding to provide abortion services. And so I think that that has helped build a base that the response to the gag world this time around can be built on as well. Let's
1: talk about international law. In what ways does this new policy violate international law?
3: Within international law, you have international human rights law. And the way international human rights law works is there are a slew of international human rights treaties out there in the world. And those international human rights treaties cover a broad range of topics and countries sign, ratify these treaties, make them enforceable within their borders. Once these international human rights treaties are in effect, countries are obligated to enforce them and make them realize the rights that are embedded in them. So take the Convention Against Torture, for instance. GAG and barring abortion access is a violation of the right to be free from torture, the right to be free from cruel and human and degrading treatment. And that's not even necessarily me as an advocate at GJC saying that. That's something that the Committee Against Torture has found, the Special Rapporteur Against Torture has found, and a wide variety of other international actors have said, if you restrict abortion in certain contexts— It constitutes torture or cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. And that's a human right that we have to be free from that type of treatment. But Helms, nonetheless, violates it.
2: The U.S., what it's doing is it's actually contravening the ability of other countries to ensure that their citizens have the rights that they're supposed to have. Nowhere is this as egregious as it is in the area of free speech. As we discussed, the Helms Amendment, the Stillinger Amendment, the gag rule, they're not just about performing abortion services, they're about talking about abortion. So in one context, they restrict the information that a doctor can provide a patient. So they interfere within that relationship. So Elena, if you were my doctor, we would be suppressing the speech that you as a person could give to your own patient. In another context, and this is where the cylinder Amendment is really important, we shut down speech that relates to changing laws in other countries. And so we've talked a lot about unsafe abortion. There are years and multiple studies that show one very important thing. Legality of abortion has nothing to do with the number of women who seek it. Legality has zero to do with the rates of abortion. What legality correlates specifically with is the abortion services that are available safe or unsafe. When performed safely, abortion is one of the safest medical procedures that a woman can get. But when it's unsafe, we have staggering statistics. 13% of maternal death around the world is still attributed to unsafe abortion. Millions of women around the world suffer from very serious consequences, even if they don't die, from having an unsafe abortion, self-administering themselves, taking traditional methods, insertion of objects. There's a whole range of ways that women, when they can't get access to a legal abortion, what they do. And we're seeing an increase of those in the United States even today because of the limitations on how few clinics there are. So what does that mean? It means that in order to serve public health concerns over women's lives, changing abortion laws is an incredibly important component of ensuring women's access to health. And what the GAG and HELMS and Sillinger do is they shut down political speech as well. So it's not just the doctor that's limited. It's not just a clinic director. Through the Helms Amendment and Sillinger, which does apply to foreign governments, for example, it's people that we fund in ministries of health in other countries. It's advocates who are working on constitutional legal reform more broadly, as well as around women's rights. And so what we do is we stop them from participating in conferences and studies on the impact of unsafe abortion. We stop them from participating at all. You know, we once stopped a minister of health in Malawi from participating in a conference because it was contemplated that changing Malawi's abortion law would be on the agenda. And that was explicitly shut down by USAID. And so what we're doing is we're also causing severe long term consequences because we are preventing the change that needs to happen. So you have all these human rights bodies telling these countries, these other countries, in order to comply with your human rights obligations, you need to make abortion legal. You need to To remove barriers to access to abortion and yet actively with us money what we're doing is shutting down the ability in many many countries for them to be able to do so so we are stopping countries we are stopping women's rights advocates from achieving human rights around the world not only directly in the provision of services but in creating a legal infrastructure that allows women to realize their human
3: rights by way of example at least as it relates to political speech the speech restrictions that the u.s puts on abortion services is kind of like if there were a country out there in the world where the use of pesticides caused a whole slew of health complications well when the u.s gives money to this country or ngos in this country we add a little caveat that says you're not allowed to talk about pesticides at all not about that they're causing damage not about anything and so that prohibits that country from doing anything to fix that problem, from passing legislation or amending their constitution to prohibit pesticides in their country, and wholly prevents them from improving the health situation in their country, and that is very, very similar to what the US's abortion restrictions on speech do in foreign countries.
2: The minute. You replace abortion with something else. People have a much clearer way of seeing the complete absurdity of what it is that we're trying to do. We treat abortion with this crazy exceptionalism when it is really just medical care. It's a service that's needed by women. And we really need to get to a place where we stop allowing that to happen when it comes to abortion because the result is clear. Despite Trump wanting to rename this the protecting life and global health assistance policy out of, I'm not not really sure why. I think they said that it more accurately reflects what it's trying to do is if there's anything we've talked about throughout this podcast, it's that what the policy does is the opposite of protecting life or at least protecting women's lives. And it typically causes harm.
1: What about U.S. laws? Does this new policy violate any U.S.
2: laws? Our constitutional jurisprudence provides no protection from this. And so funding has been distinguished from access to a fundamental right. And so there's been a series of cases that have gone up through the Supreme Court, all of which have failed because the U.S. does not provide any sort of constitutional protections when it comes to how federal funds are used to promote a particular viewpoint or another, because you don't have to subsidize the access of a fundamental right. You just can't create barriers to it. So constitutionally, unfortunately, there isn't really anything technically that it violates. We would argue that it absolutely does violate constitutional guarantees of free speech. And what legal victories have have there been? What more can be done?
3: Certain of the legal victories have happened from GJC since the August 12th campaign began in 2010. And a lot of that progress relates to the thing Akilah was just talking about, international humanitarian law, and getting abortion services to be recognized as falling within the category of health care protected by international humanitarian law. And international humanitarian law, which is sometimes referred to as just the Geneva Conventions of 1949, the broad laws passed after World War II, are some of international law's strongest laws. It's very, very respected. It's a regime that's taken very, very seriously. As a result of the August 12th campaign that GGC has been undertaking now for about seven years, has been trying to embed an interpretation of international humanitarian law to avail abortion services to victims of conflict. And countries have been starting to do that. The United Nations Security Council has started to do that. The EU has done that. So the victories have been the recognition in these bodies by state governments or by the UN, by the EU. If you're a victim of armed conflict, your right to non-discriminatory medical care includes the option of abortion. So war rape victims, women and girls who are pregnant in situations of armed conflict, there is beginning to develop a global consensus that they have the right to the option of abortion services because of the grants of international humanitarian law. And that is something that no one else is really doing.
2: There's also been massive victories around the world using human rights law and in domestic regimes of changing abortion laws. So since the last time the gag rule was in place in 2008 under George W. Bush, 30 countries have liberalized their abortion laws. And what that means is now we're operating in a landscape and in a sphere where in more countries, abortion is a legal service that women are entitled to access. And that's enormous. Those are important victories and we need to continue to build on those. And so of course the gag rule is going to complicate the landscape as Helms already does. Despite all of this, we see this progress. In women's rights, we see an upward trajectory. We actually perhaps don't see that here in the United States because we're seeing a slow rollback, a consistent rollback of women's rights. And I think that what we are seeing is the power of the law to really bolster and move forward women's rights to equality. And if equality is the guiding principle, then these other rights, rights to health, right to be free from discrimination, for us as GJC, that's where we wanna keep building. Whether it's on ensuring that women raped war have access to abortion services around the world, that's not just about the U.S. As Grant was saying, we've been building positive legal victories and practices with other countries because while the U.S. remains an impediment, others remain a force for positive change whether that is community actors local actors regional actors or other international actors and i think that's where we really see the need to continue to push forward and push ahead and that's where it's been heartening to see an immediate response against the global gag rule because it shows that we're at a place now where others aren't willing to passively sit by and allow the us to use its money to dictate what women's lives look like all around the world those are the legal victories that we're going 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 to be going for, whether it's under a Trump administration, whether it's under the next Democratic administration, maybe I'm wrong, but who Helms will probably remain in place under. And we will need to continue to fight against the tide of the U.S. being a regressive force around the world. But that's not going to stop us from trying to achieve human rights everywhere else.